if you've got an old-fashioned Bible, uh, probably wondering where on earth is Nehemiah? Uh, well, it's left of the Psalms. Uh, if you end up on the wrong side of the Psalms, you're in trouble. So it's before Psalms. It's about halfway through the Old Testament, in between Ezra and Esther. Uh, that probably doesn't help either. Um, so it's after Kings and Chronicles, uh, but before Job. So uh, find the book. That's the first challenge. Um, but that's interesting because uh, the events that are recorded in the book of Nehemiah uh, happen at the very end of the Old Testament period. Now that can be a bit confusing because the books are not in chronological order. Um, in the books in our Bibles are arranged according to uh, type. So you have history books together, then you have the poetry books, and then you have the books of prophecy. Um, so uh, Nehemiah comes at the end of the historical books um, and it's talking about events that happened um, at the very end of the Old Testament period. So hopefully you found it by now and we're going to read chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my ancestral family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that all scripture is inspired uh, to make us wise for salvation and to equip us for discipleship and to live lives that are pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, that your spirit has inspired uh, every part of scripture. And as we turn to this book now, I pray that you will be our teacher, that your spirit will uh, work upon the, uh, the words of the text and my words and uh, bring your word to our hearts, Lord. Give us open hearts and minds and uh, use this time now 
to transform us into the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, it might be helpful to put Nehemiah into some sort of historical and biblical context. If you're not familiar with the book, um, so this might be helpful. So there should be a, a slide, uh, hopefully will appear on the screen, uh, some of the, the key dates. Now, some of you are coming out in a cold sweat already because it's reminding you of history lessons in school. Um, but you've got key dates down this side, uh, you've got key events, and then the bit part of the Bible that deals with it. So some key dates, 587 BC, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and the people taken into exile in Babylon. And you can read about that at the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Uh, they don't just tell us that it happened, they tell why it happened. That this was God's judgment uh, on, on an unfaithful people who uh, continued to um, reject God's word and uh, eventually God said, I can't take this anymore. Uh, you're going to lose the temple, you're going to lose the land, and the people were sent to exile. Um, but it was temporary. It lasted from 587 to 539. Um, and uh, the book of Daniel uh, tells us a bit about that period of the exile. And then in 539, Babylon was defeated and Persia became uh, the main uh, empire. And uh, the king of Persia, King Cyrus, issued a decree and said the Jews could go back to their homeland. Um, and that's all prophesied in Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 66. Even named Cyrus, the Persian king, that he will be God's instrument in enabling the, the people to return back to their homeland. And so the, um, the Jews return, and they return in three um, waves, really. The first group return um, in 539, and the book of Ezra first half of Ezra uh, talks about that um, and the first thing they do is rebuild the temple and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah uh, speak into that situation encouraging the people to rebuild the temple um, and then <clears throat> uh, you've got the, the book of Esther which deals with something else happening um, in, in the empire uh, and then 458 the second wave return uh, and the second half of Ezra um, talks about that. And then 445 BC, the third group returns um, under Nehemiah. And the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. Um, and then around 400, we think the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were uh, collected and uh, edited. And then after that, there's nothing in the Old Testament. The next thing that happens is the birth of Jesus. Uh, so that's what I mean about it. it comes right at the end of the Old Testament period. You have the silent years uh, after that. So that's a little bit of kind of background where Nehemiah fits into the um, biblical context. Let me clear one thing up right at the very start. Nehemiah was not the shortest man in the Bible. Nehemiah. Uh, does, any, does anybody know who, who it was? Bildad the Shuhite. Yes, I think uh, that honor goes to Bildad the Shuhite. That's biblical humor, folks. Um, <clears throat> I've says in my notes, pause while audience recover composure. No. <clears throat> well, so we have this book of Nehemiah. It's written in the first person. Uh, it's uh, 
obviously there's an editor introducing it, the words of Nehemiah, but then immediately it goes into Nehemiah's own uh, voice uh, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Uh, so this is Nehemiah's own account in his own words of what happened. Now, the way this book has been sort of used and understood uh, in the church is interesting because preachers often turn to this book when they're about to undertake a new building project in the hope that it will uh, um, give some principles to help get the job done. And no doubt there are useful insights to be gleaned. Nehemiah did oversee the rebuilding of the city walls, but that's not why he's recorded it for us. It's not a, a builder's manual. You won't find DIY advice in Nehemiah. Others use the book as a source of leadership training. In fact, Nehemiah is synonymous with leadership. It reminds me of when I was involved in student work. Uh, we were planning a leadership conference for the Christian Union leaders in London. Um, and as part of the planning team, we discussed possible themes for this conference. And the general feeling was that we always do Nehemiah or 2 Timothy. Those are the, the two books that are always um, mentioned in, in the context of leadership. So we thought, let's do something different. The Bible's got lots to say about leadership. Apart from Nehemiah, there's Moses, there's Joshua, there's David. Uh, and then we settled on Daniel. We thought that would be novel. Um, so we wrote to a local church leader, invited him to come and speak at the conference. Uh, on leadership from the book of Daniel. And he agreed to come. We got the publicity printed. We organized the training weekend and everybody arrived, all the students from all over London. And then the day the speaker arrived um, and we met him and he said, well, I'm not going to speak on Daniel. He says, God's told me to speak on Nehemiah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what can you do? It's like you can't shake off this reputation that Nehemiah is all about leadership. Now, and of course, there are leadership lessons in the book of Nehemiah, and we will be mining the book for those, and Carl will be bringing those out, uh, no doubt, in the coming weeks. There's lots to learn about organizing the work, um, handling opposition, uh, working together, and so on. But the book of Nehemiah is not primarily a leadership manual. And the problem with viewing the book as a builder's handbook or a leadership manual is that it doesn't take account of the whole book. We need to understand the whole book. It's like a, a jigsaw where every piece needs to be uh, incorporated. You don't want any bits left over at the end. And the walls are completed by chapter 7. But that's not the end of the book. Nehemiah's main concern... I suggest, is not to rebuild the walls, but to rebuild the nation, to build the people of God. And for Israel, this is still the old covenant, of course, for Israel at that time, that meant being the chosen people of God, um, walking in obedience to the law of Moses. And that's why Ezra is there too. Ezra was a priest, but he was also Israel's teacher. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra reads the law of Moses. And then in chapter 9, Nehemiah prays that the people will obey the law of Moses. And in chapter 10, the people give their consent that they will obey the law of Moses. So Nehemiah 10, verse 29, says, The people agree 
to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. And then in the final chapter, it's a sobering reminder that the people cannot keep the law. Nehemiah has to go and impose discipline on the people and rebuke them for their um, unfaithfulness. And that's kind of where the Old Testament finishes. Nehemiah chapter 13, that's the last action. The people unable to obey the law. And that's a reminder that this is still the old covenant. They were still waiting for the Messiah. Even though the people of God were back in the land, they'd rebuilt the temple, the sacrifices were being offered again, uh, the law was being taught, all those things were back in place. But they could not change people's hearts. They needed someone to keep the law for them. They needed a saviour to rescue them. They needed the Holy Spirit to write the law on their hearts and empower them to live differently. There are lots to learn. There's lots to learn from Nehemiah because he's a, a man of great faith, or a great man of faith, should I say. But the book ends on a note of failure. He builds the walls, but he can't reform the nation. He can't change people's hearts. This is still Old Covenant. And the nation of Israel was never meant to be the final embodiment of the kingdom of God. If it was, Jesus needn't have come. The challenge for us then is knowing how do you apply these lessons today because we're under the new covenant. We don't go to a temple anymore. We, the people of God, are the new temple. Um, we don't offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus has already offered the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. We're no longer under the law of Moses, but we are still under the law of Christ. So that's a little bit of background and context. So let's just focus on chapter one. What can we learn from this first chapter? I just want to comment on three things from Nehemiah. First, his responsible service. Secondly, his responsive heart. And thirdly, his great prayer. So first, his responsible service. <clears throat> Nehemiah had been born in exile. And like Joseph and Daniel and Esther, he too had, had risen to a significant position of influence in the service of a pagan government. In Nehemiah's case, he was cupbearer to the king. And his responsibilities probably included tasting the king's food and wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Um, but he would have been much more than that, much more than a cupbearer. He had close access to the king as a protector and confidant. He's a top-ranking civil servant in the court of King Artaxerxes of Persia, the mighty king, fulfilling his duties 700 miles away from Jerusalem in uh, Susa, one of three Persian capitals. But he was God's man in God's place at the time of God's choosing. <clears throat> Nehemiah was the man God had chosen uh, for the job he had in mind. He was obviously a man with proven abilities and clear priorities, and God was going to use him 
not just to rebuild the walls, but to help rebuild Israel. Now, I wonder if Nehemiah ever asked himself the question, what am I doing here? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What am I doing here? What am I doing in this job? How did I end up here in this situation? It's easy to think we're in the wrong place, isn't it? That if only things were different, if only my situation was different, I'd, I could be more effective for God. But Nehemiah reminds us that if we live for kingdom values, then we can make a difference for God wherever we find ourselves. Leaders are important, of course, but God rarely works without raising up key people uh, for specific tasks. But let's be clear, it's not pastors and leaders on their own who are going to turn this nation around. I reckon there are two million or so ordinary Christians on the ground living out their faith where they are. Ordinary Christians doing responsible service in all kinds of ways, being salt and light where they are. People like you serving in offices and shops, factories, schools, boardrooms and hospitals. You're the ones with the ability to make a difference. The opportunities are on our doorstep every day. It's too easy, isn't it, to wallow in regret about the past uh, or to dream about some hoped for future instead of opening our eyes to where God has placed us now. I don't particularly enjoy working in a pub kitchen for half the week, um, washing pots and emptying bins, especially when I agreed to do a Saturday night shift and didn't finish till midnight last night. But that's where God has put me, for now. It's a mission field. Most of the people who work there will never meet another Christian. And that might be true for your situation too. God has put you there for a purpose. Yeah, maybe he will move you on. Maybe he has something else for you like he did for Nehemiah. But we need to get into that mindset of this is where I am. I'm called to responsible service here and now. God can use me where I am. So that's the first thing to learn from Nehemiah, his responsible service. Secondly, um, we see his responsive heart in verses 2 to 4. <clears throat> it's interesting how he becomes aware of, uh, of the need. There's no dramatic call to action. He doesn't have a vision. Uh, he doesn't have an angelic messenger. No, the information comes from a, a Jewish delegation who bring news of the situation back in Jerusalem. And uh, Nehemiah has to ask for information. He questions them about it. He wants to know how are things back in, uh, in Judah? Um, how are th the people? Uh, what is happening? And they were face things were not good. They were facing an extinction threat from other peoples in the land. They're in grave danger from uh, many enemies. They're disheartened. And as a result, they had no vision or energy for the work of rebuilding their broken city. And because they weren't secure, then, then uh, there was a, th a real threat to the um, viability and the existence of, the, of God's people, of the Jews, back in Judah. But why, why was this important then um, for Nehemiah? You know, why couldn't they have just 
the Jews uh, throughout the empire in exile could have just settled down and got on with their jobs. Why this need to go back and uh, be in the, 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 the land and to rebuild? Is it just a matter of national pride? Every people wants a homeland? Okay, yes, that's true. But I think this is, there's more than that here. This is a spiritual and theological issue. Because the return of the exiles to their homeland was a key ingredient in God's redemptive plan for the whole world. To put it simply, if there's no Israel, then there's no Messiah. If there's no people of God established uh, in Jerusalem, then there's no Messiah, there's no Jesus. That's why Nehemiah is concerned about the fate of Jerusalem. He doesn't know exactly how God's plan is going to unfold, but, but he, he knows that, um, that he, he, Jerusalem's at the heart of it. Because more than that, this was the place that God had chosen as a dwelling for his name. God's own reputation was at stake. The people were demoralized. God was dishonored. And for Nehemiah, this was a shattering blow. When I heard these things, verse 4, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So here he is serving this pagan king with no spiritual support that we know of, living in considerable prosperity. But it's clear he had not lost his spiritual passion. His heart was responsive to the things of God. Such was his concern for the honor of God's name and the welfare of his people. And, and Nehemiah experiences intense emotion, uh, something like grief. It was, it was intensive. It brought him to weeping. It was extensive. It lasted for some days. And it was expressive. He mourned and fasted and prayed. And we'll come to his prayer in a moment. But... Let me just ask you, when, when did you last weep for the honor of God's name or the fate of his people, the church? I'm ashamed to say I can't remember when I last did that. Someone has said that modern evangelicalism, that's Bible-believing Christianity, has no place for tears. That can't be right. Something is wrong if our hearts aren't moved by the right things. We might get moved by other trivial things, by a pop song or a, a movie or our football team. But what about the honor of God's name? What about the state of the church? What about the sin of the world? When were we last brought to tears because of those things? I read once that the, you remember the former newsreader, Trevor MacDonald, that uh, he would sometimes spend time alone in his dressing room after reading the news, weeping, because he felt some of the pain and distress of the news that he was delivering. Back in the 19th century, um, one of General Booth's workers was struggling to see success in his work with the Salvation Army. So he sent a telegram to General Booth asking for advice. The reply came back, try tears. Lots of us have energy and want to do great things for God, but if our service is not matched by a responsive heart, 
then we will not care enough to do the things that God wants us to do. There must be that emotional engagement. That's, that's where service starts, isn't it? And the Bible allows for this. Think of Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Paul weeping over the fate of the Jews. And then in the book of Revelation that the saints are in heaven weeping over the church and the world. Maybe we need a fresh engagement with spiritual realities. God is, is blessing us, don't get me wrong, but we want to see more, don't we? And our hearts must be responsive. We sing a song, don't we? Break my heart for what breaks yours. I think there's a line, something like that. Um, and that should be our prayer. Lord, make me more desperate for the honor of your name, more penitent over the state of my soul, and more emotionally connected with the plight of the lost. That's, and that's a challenge, isn't it, for us all? But Nehemiah didn't just sort of feel this anguish um, and keep it to himself. He took it to God in prayer. And that's the, the third thing we need to look at. And that's his commitment to prayer. Verses 5 to 11. Um, Chuck Swindle calls Nehemiah a leader from the knees up. He was certainly an activist who got things done. But he was a man of prayer first. And we must rid ourselves of this idea um, that, uh, that, that we can be self-sufficient. That I can do anything on my own. No, prayer is the prelude and the foundation to any work that we do, any service that we offer. Because it's in prayer that we ensure that our priorities are in fact God's priorities and that the glory goes to him. So here's a few observations about Nehemiah's prayer. Um, so here we go. I think there are ten of them, but we'll go quickly. First, it was the culmination of much prayer. Says verse six. Um, says this is the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. This wasn't a prayer he just prayed once. He prayed it over and over again. Not necessarily with the same words every time, but but in essence the same concern. And Jesus told us to persist in prayer. To not give up, because God is a good Father who delights to give good things to his children don't give up in praying persevere in prayer even if you don't seem to be getting an answer maybe God is just building perseverance in you strengthening you keep praying for the things that he's put on your heart uh, secondly his prayer began with God he addresses God Lord the God of heaven the great and awesome God he doesn't just jump straight in with his uh, prayer list his request, Lord, I need this, I need that. Of course, God is interested in our needs and we're encouraged to pray for our daily bread, uh, to bring all our needs to him, whatever they may be. But think about the Lord's Prayer. The order is significant. It starts, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then give us today our daily bread. So he begins with God. Thirdly, it's a biblical prayer. Again, in verse 5, he prays to the God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him 
and keep his commandments. Uh, the Bible is the story of God's covenant with his people, a covenant of love, because although God did bring judgment on Israel for their sin, he did not abandon them completely. The Bible is the story of an unfaithful people and a faithful God. If you want to know how to pray better, get to know your Bible. Understand who we're praying to. Understand the character uh, of God. Fourth, it was a pleading prayer. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. Lord, please listen to your servant. Look upon me with favor. Now, we know he will listen. He's promised that he will hear us. But let's not presume. Let's not take God for granted. Fifth, it was a communal prayer offered on behalf of God's people. <clears throat> Verse 6, the, the prayer your servant is praying for your servants, the people of Israel. That's what's on his heart. It's the welfare of God's people. Jesus prayed for the church, didn't he, in John 17. He prays for those who will come to believe in him. Uh, Romans 8, the Spirit helps us as we intercede on behalf of the saints, as we pray for one another. Yes, let's pray for ourselves and our own needs, but let's pray for the church, the bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't just mean our local church, Redeemer King, it means all God's people around the world. Let's not be parochial and narrow in our concern. Six, it recognized sin. Verse six and seven, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my ancestral family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Notice there that I, Nehemiah identifies with the sin of Israel. He knows he's not innocent. He's not sinless. It's like Isaiah when he prayed in the temple, Woe to me, because I live among a people of unclean lips. And we need to have room in our praying and thinking for the category of sin, however unpopular it may be today. We're very quick to blame our circumstances, aren't we? Our situation or... Um, or problems external to us, but there may well be personal sin involved. A failure to love God with heart, soul, mind and strength. A reluctance to submit to his word. Doing things with the wrong motives. Confession and repentance must be part of our praying. It recognized sin. Then seven, his prayer claimed the promises of God. Verses eight and nine. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the Father's horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah reminds God of things that he'd promised. And the best prayers to pray um, are when we ask God to do things that he's already promised to do. Because you know then that you're praying in the will of God. No doubts whatsoever. Nehemiah prays to God to remember his promises. Now, of course, God's covenant was a double-edged sword. God had said, if you obey me, there'll be blessings. If you disobey me, 
there'll be consequences. Either way, God would be faithful to his word. And sadly, Israel experienced judgment in the form of exile. Another unpopular thing, God does judge. As Jesus warns in the letters to the seven churches, he removes lampstands. Whatever that means. <laughs> but he judges the church. But there's also a promise of restoration which was fulfilled in the return from exile. And many claim that promise when they were during those years in exile. Many were saying, how long, O oh Lord? How long is it going to be? When are you going to bring us back to the land like you promised? Fifty years. There can be no doubt you're praying according to the will of God when you pray his promises. There are some things God hasn't promised to do. He hasn't promised to make me richer. He hasn't promised to make me funnier. But he has promised to forgive my sin if I confess to him. He has promised to sanctify me. He has promised to finish the work he begun in me and bring me to glory. He has promised to build his church. So we need to pray in accord with his will as expressed in his promises. Eight, his prayer is based on God as saviour and rescuer. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Well, Nehemiah is referring to the Exodus, of course, when God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt under Moses. Nehemiah's confidence is in God and what he had promised. That he would have a people for himself, a treasured possession. And, and we can pray with even greater confidence than that. Because Jesus has laid down his life for us. He's our redeemer. He's redeemed us. And so we pray to the one who's rescued us and redeemed us. We are his special possession. We belong to him. Nine, Nehemiah recognized that he wasn't alone. Verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Who are they? Don't know. Um, but he's not a one-man band. He knows he's part of a fellowship of believers who had the same concerns and were praying the same things. They may not have been close to Nehemiah, but they revered the same God. And we need to remember that when we pray, that we are never alone. You're never alone when you pray. Others are praying the same prayers. And then finally, 10. It concludes with a specific request. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The man being King Artaxerxes of Persia. So at the end of his long prayer, that is the request. He wants favor uh, in his meeting with the king. And that, you can read what happens in chapter 2. But prayer isn't the means of escaping from the world. Now, some of us see prayer as sort of a way of, sort of meditation. It's a way of obtaining peace uh, and calming ourselves down. And that may well be a byproduct. Hopefully that does happen when we pray. But that's not the purpose of prayer. Prayer is a means of changing the world. Not just um, feeling better about life, 
Because when you pray, you can't help but think about how you can be the answer to that prayer that you've just prayed. And if Nehemiah was going to do anything about the fate of the Jews in Jerusalem that God had laid upon his heart, then he knew that he would need favor from the king that very day. Prayer alerts us to the strategic opportunities that God provides. And say, next time we're in Nehemiah, we'll see how God answered Nehemiah's prayer. So, as we close, let's just reflect on the lessons we can learn from Nehemiah in this first chapter. There'll be many more to come, don't worry, but, but here, this is the foundation uh, of everything else. His responsible service, his responsive heart, and his commitment to prayer.